into a bar on a cool winter's evening underneath the stars and we'll find somewhere close hello and welcome to the cool room uh i'm one of your hosts my name is david griffiths and it's fantastic to be having so many people joining us live in zoom and i'm sure via the podcast later on for what is the 50th edition of the cool room so little round of applause that I'll give to myself through some special effects thing later on. And thank you to David and others who are doing that in the Zoom room with us. Uh, tonight, we're very honoured and excited to have some friends from Batch Brewing joining us. But as ever, I'll run through a few housekeeping things before we get underway, just for people who are both in the Zoom room and listening at home. So first and foremost, if you've not listened to one of our virtual Meet the Brewers before, the, uh, the night is designed to be enjoyed with some of the great beers from Batch in your hands. And tonight that's four specific beers. We are going to be having Pash the Magic Dragon, the Beastie Boysenberry, the Big Kahuna Coconut Brown Ale, and the Elsie the Milk Stout. So if you're in the Zoom room, make sure you have those ready. And uh, if you want to enjoy the podcast to its fullest, you can get those beers, depending on where you are, either from Batch directly or through other suppliers around Australia. Or if you're in Melbourne, we still have a couple of cases left that we can home deliver to you from the Royal Mail and Spencer. And um, that's one of the things that we do each week with these podcasts is make sure that you can enjoy the beers uh, as we listen to the stories about them. Uh, there are four big beers, both in terms of volume in the can and uh, the alcohol content of them. So we're not expecting that people are going to be able to drink, and nor are we encouraging people to drink all of those beers in the short time that we're together. Uh, so if you're drinking at home, uh, feel free to make yourself a tasting paddle and come back and enjoy them later on. Or if you're listening on the podcast, feel free to pause after each of the beers. We'll make it quite clear when we're going to move from one beer to another. And that way you can enjoy them at a leisurely pace rather than going at a breakneck speed and, and not enjoying yourself. Uh, a big thank you to everyone who has been joining us in the podcast rooms lately and uh, who has been rating and reviewing us on whatever platform you listen to us. That makes a big difference to us. We can't afford advertising and things like that. So if you can spread the word and make sure that you rate and review us on your podcast platform, that's a great way to do things. And um, if you're working your way back through those previous 50 episodes, there's some great content there. And so we hope you enjoy all of that. We've been really lucky lately to have some great uh, guests from Nomad, from La Serene, from Ale Farm in Denmark. And um, last time around, as many of the people who are in the Zoom room know, we had Sierra Nevada join us, and that was about a four and a half hour podcast that's been whittled down by Travis to a couple of two hour episodes. Um, we really encourage you to go back and listen to those ones. They're great episodes, and you can still get the tasting packs for most of those ones from us if you need to. Uh, and if you don't already follow us on Instagram and Facebook, then you're missing out on knowing about future episodes. And we've got some crackers of them as well. Next week, uh, as in terms of recording time, we have Deep Creek from New Zealand. And we have a great package of beers from them, including three of their core ranges and six brand new limited releases. 
We then have Kaiju, who are old friends of the podcast, and they've done a collaboration with Thin Man from New York. And then the week after that, we have Tallboy and Moose. So that's a pretty amazing lineup of, of beers. Um, but first and foremost, and most importantly tonight, uh, first of all, it's my happy pleasure to introduce the man who sent me a message today to order some circling snarks. That's my co-host, Travis Bristow. Travis, how are you, brother? I'm well, David. How are you? And uh, that was definitely a, uh, a misprint on the message I sent you. It's still the title of my next autobiography. I say my next autobiography. I don't really have anything to put in the first one. But... <laughs> what, what was the title of your first one? Uh, it, it's a <laughs> Circling Snarks Part 2. I, I'm, I'm difficult like that. Uh, but more excitingly than you and I bantering about potential autobiography names, we're joined tonight by two friends from Batch Brewing. We're joined by Liam, who is the head brewer. Oh, that's, that's me. I'm Tom. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Here. What's happened to you? I didn't help you. Uh, I, I see what you've done there. It was very confusing, and I'm a total Zoom noob, so I apologise profusely for that. Um, that's all right. We... We, we're used to apologising. Yeah. We're joined. Let me. I'm not going. We, we won't edit this out. Don't worry. But we're joined by Liam, the group venue and events manager. Hey guys, how are we going? And Tom, who's the head brewer? Yes, I am. How are you doing? <laughs> guys, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Zoom room. It's fantastic to have you on. We've had a couple of goes. I think of getting this to happen, but um, it's super exciting that we have such a great lineup of beers to talk about tonight. So. We're very honoured, genuinely, to have you in the room with us. So, hopefully everyone has cracked a Hash the Magic Dragon. Why don't we just start out by, perhaps, Tom, you explaining the kinds of flavours that people should be enjoying, what they should be looking for in terms of the colour, and then we can start to talk about how that beer has come about and its importance to the brewery. Sure. Um, well, Pash is... Uh... Obviously, if you've tasted already, it's a sour ale. So um, immediately, uh, what you notice straight off is a big sort of fruity passion fruit character, uh, and also visually, it's quite pink. So those are the two primary things with this beer: is passion fruit and dragon fruit, and they're they're coming through with a real punch. Um, Aroma-wise, I mean, for me, this is just like bright, fresh passion fruit juice. Um, it's, uh, it does have a little bit of our sour culture coming through as well. I find that sometimes presents as like, like a lemony character. Um, but uh, uh, it's, I like this beer because it, you know how people say it sort of does what it says, does what, says what it does on the tin or was it? Does, yeah, on the, does what it says on the tin, yeah. I like that about this beer because it really does deliver in, uh, in that sense. Um, Flavour wise, Flavor-wise, um, certainly like a little bit of a bready character there and does have a high wheat content. So you end up with a bit of a doughy sort of character, which is quite pleasant coming through. And you get that nice acidity uh, coming through on the side of the tongue, um, which keeps that nice and crisp. It has that little bit of sweetness from the fruit there. But um, all around, I mean, this beer, it's visually impressive. It's refreshing to drink. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's certainly a favourite of the brewery. And... I suppose it's a very good one to start with because some of us have been trying a few other beers that have gone out in the tasting packs that have gone out this week. But this one, as you say, cleanses the palates and starts to sort of 
set us off. In the when you sort of you guys serve this up in the venues, is this where you recommend people start, and, or you know how do you guys approach it? You know, perhaps um, Liam, you can talk through how you'd introduce people to the beers of the brewery. Yeah, generally, like um, in the tasting rooms, we sort of lay out uh, like a menu board, starting from lighter and moving on to heavier, and the sour beers are generally the first ones on there. Um, we have like a curated tasting paddle, like of six beers that we do. And we sort of change it up each week. And at the moment, Passion's on there and it's number one. Um, so it's the first beer on the tasting paddle. So it's a great point to start on. But also um, what I love about sour beers and fruited sour beers is like you can sort of put them in anywhere. And like if you find yourself, you've like moved on to some darker or maltier beers and you want to go back, like a sour beer and a fruited sour is a great way to sort of just strip, reset the palate and sort of mm. you can sort of keep on going. Whereas it's kind of like... You're on a porter, but you want to have a lager to finish on, so you can have this in the middle just to refresh Stop. the palate and get you get you over there as well. So um, yeah, we generally recommend people starting off with them, and it's like the order where we're drinking the beers tonight is a great example of that. But if you finish on the LC and you want to have a couple more beers after that, then this is a great one to go back to to sort of uh, help reset the palate in that regard. We've got a couple of questions already being asked by people in the Zoom room, and that's fantastic. And um, we really encourage people to join us live on Thursday night so that they can ask their questions as we go along. Um, one of the first questions, I mean, Shane has asked a question about the colour of the beer in terms of, you know, this one perhaps not being as pink as other dragon fruit beers, um, which we'll get to in a second. My question would be, how many other dragon fruit beers are you guys aware of? And Shana, that can, you can type your answer to that as well, because I don't think I've ever had a beer with dragon fruit in it before, but perhaps I haven't lived. I was thinking the exact same thing. I'm interested to see what Shana's about to type out here. Have you guys heard of any other dragon fruit beers? Uh, I haven't. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're out there because they do provide that, that fantastic pink colour and you don't have to use any um, artificial colouring, which is great. Um, but I can't, I can't think of any off the top of that at all, no. I think I can, we can see Shanna in the Zoom room, I presume, quickly going through her untapped or something like that to figure out what's going on there. But I guess it leads to the question, why dragon fruit? You know, of all the fruit you might have been sitting around considering, you know, when you, when you walked into the, your local Safeway, which <laughs> isn't closed for coronavirus cleaning like mine is, um, why, why that one? I mean, dragon fruit itself, um, it doesn't really provide a whole lot of, uh, significant flavour. It certainly is a um, it's a visual aspect to the beer. Um, dragon fruit initially, I think um, I don't know the original story as to why dragon fruit went into beer because this beer was a it was an older style and it was made before I started working there. Um, but why it was chosen, I don't know. But I know that they were cutting originally cutting fresh fruit, and when you're cutting that, that's a great photo opportunity for social media because that is bright, bright pink. Um, it is, it's quite remarkable. And we were still doing that when I started. And um, since then, we've, we've, because of just the volume we've had to produce, we've, we've moved to a uh, pureed product that we have done off-site. Um, but I mean, dragon fruit, it's the colour. It's just such a vibrant colour. And you can't, it's just not comparable to anything that you can get, um, you know, that has, you know, like, a, I guess, a very subtle flavour that will blend well with, with so many beers. If you're using a berry, you know, that will carry through too strongly if you don't want too much of a berry character. Otherwise, you have to use an artificial colouring. So that puree you're talking about, is that um, what, what colours the puree? Is that what gives the beer the colour? Or do you put something else in the beer to create that that vibrant colour of it? 
No, it's the it's the puree itself. So the puree yeah, right. is vibrant pink. Yeah, when it comes, so it's yeah. it's, it's quite literally processed um, dragon fruit, fresh, um, and then we get it um, snap frozen, basically. And um, yeah, so once it goes in, it, it it's it changes the beer from like a straw, a pale straw yellow, which you'd find um, almost if you imagine a uh, a hefeweizen, um, and it will change it straight away to a bright pink. Yeah. Peter in the Zoom room has pointed out that uh, Dad and Dave do a Brookvale Northern one. You guys might be more familiar with that up in Sydney. Oh, yeah, actually, um, Dave Dave was in the brewery having a beer on the weekend, actually. Um, Yeah, great guys. He Um, wasn't trying to steal dragon fruit, uh, (laughs) you know, puree when you weren't looking. He was walking around my core room a little bit, but no, I think he was good. In a trench coat? Uh, Yeah, why are you wearing a trench coat in my brewery? <laughs> no, they're great guys. Um, what I was going to say is, I think the other reason why the passion fruit and dragon fruit were chosen for this beer is um, it was fruit that we can source year round as well. Mm. So this is our like our year round sour. We like we have other sours that come in and out of season, but that's a lot of that seasonality with fruit. Um, and I think particularly when we started, we're using whole fruit that um, we could source passion fruit and dragon fruit year round. So it's a good way of Gary Sparrow in the room's asked a sort of a, a related question to that. He's asked, is this an entry level sour? And I guess you guys make a number of sours. Could you perhaps describe some of the other ones that you make? And would you always have this as the first one on a tasting paddle as an entry level sour? Or, you know, how, how do you guys sort of feel about the other ones that you make? And tell us about that style a bit. We definitely do have a broad range of sours. Entry, I mean, I'd say this one is an entry-level sour because we always have it and people have that ability to become familiar with it. Um, and uh, if you come into the tasting room a lot, you can sort of keep trying it and it does grow on you. But, um, I mean, if everyone's familiar with our current state of infusion, which is a, um, it's a dark black currant and uh, coffee sour ale, that's a little more intense. Um, and that certainly has a lot of depth of flavour. And we actually did a chat about it on one of our live tastings and it was... Um, really complex when you start to break it down and just choosing the right type of coffee. Um, that's on, that's on one end, um, of the spectrum of, of, I guess, levels of sours, but Pash is very approachable. I mean, it's, it's visually appealing, particularly people who are a bit unsure of drinking pints of beer and, you know, maybe they're cider drinkers or they're generally wine drinkers. Um, it's a nice way to start. Um, so I'd say entry level, definitely. Yeah. It's really approachable. It's not too sour. Um, we did actually bring back the pH a little bit, so it wasn't too um, enamel stripping from some of the original recipes. And that was a slow process, just so it didn't shock anybody into thinking it was suddenly a different beer. Yeah. Yeah, when I think of like, entry-level sours, it's really, particularly with fruited sours, it's all about the, the balance of fruit sweetness and the acidity of the sourness of the beer. Um, like, if you were to try the base beer for, for Pash, pre-fruit like your mouth will almost cave in of how sour it is and so that balance of the fruit sweetness really gets to be to where it is and some of our different sours it just depends on the natural sweetness of each fruit um but i think pash is at that point where it's right in the middle of uh, tartness and sweetness compared to some of our sours um yeah and as tom was saying we, we don't make a cider and stuff like that so when people who aren't generally beer drinkers come into the brewery this is normally what we would give them a taste of to start with to you know, we had a lot of people like, I don't drink beer, but I've got drag tea. It's like, that's cool. We'll, we'll still have something for you. And this is exactly like one of the beers that I would first give someone a taste of. And you'd be surprised how many people who never have enjoyed a beer in their life will have a passion actually 
come back and get a lot more of it as well. That makes, that makes total sense. Um, Tom, you've sort of described how you've come, you know, to the brewery over time and you weren't here when it, this beer began. But has the beer changed apart from its sort of manufacturing process in terms of flavours and so forth over time? Has that base beer changed? Or we're always interested to sort of hear about those sort of stories about hops aren't available anymore or this isn't available anymore, which obviously yeah. explains why you chose those fruit. But is this the same beer that we would have been enjoying if we were enjoying a pash, you know, a couple of years ago? Um, it's, it certainly would have been very similar. There's been some uh, subtle changes and that's just refining our process. And one of those was what I mentioned before was just refining that acidity. Um, we have noticed that uh, particularly with passion fruit, passion fruit is, is um, quite a tart, quite an acidic fruit. So when you, when you have too much acidity in the base beer itself and you're adding in a, an acidic fruit, um, you can overdo it. So it's just, as, as Liam said, it's about that balance. Um, so there's definitely been some refining touches there, particularly with uh, managing our pH in the souring process. So um, this is actually a kettle sour. So we have a little bit more control over this. This is, this is a, um, a Belgian style barrel aged um, complex multi-cultured sour. It's just a very simple process to do a kettle sour. Uh, and that was a process that we refined over time to dial in that pH. Um, the fruit it said, you, you know, the fruit itself, you mentioned we, we changed it, the process, but the fruit didn't flavor it. The flavor itself didn't change too much. Um, and uh, otherwise, the, the, the grain bill essentially for this one is a fairly simple wheat beer. Um, hello, we hello. Too much. It's indicative of the fact that Warren Wu has now joined us in the room. Yeah. So. <laughs> G'day, mate. Hello. Did you bring the Herald? Yeah, uh, funny. We're we're half an hour in, mate. So we'll um. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's okay. I'll just keep going, and you plug yourself in, and we'll do travel, take care of the levels and everything as we go along. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll just edit this bit out. Yeah, right. Or we won't. We'll just let Warren know. No, no. Let 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 me stew. It's fine. It's it's good. I thought I I didn't I didn't uh, see the emails. So I thought oh, seven o'clock kick off as per usual. But no. I don't think it's ever been seven o'clock kickoff, has it? But anyway, let's not bog down on bickering amongst ourselves. Yeah, let's push ahead with the questions that we're trying to deal with at hand. Um, now you, you've successfully put me off my uh, off my rhythm a little bit there, but I guess originally were there poor people in the brewery having to slice up all of these passion fruit to do things like that. <laughs> and that was, um, it's, yeah, it was, it was an awful, awful reality really for um, producing any sort of fruit beer is that you had to, uh, you, know, you had to process the fruit and that could have been lemons, peaches, apricots, you know, whatever we wanted to do. It was always some, normally dragging in a bar staff member to help us yeah. out <laughs> just on a quiet day, chop up something. So, um, yeah, and that was why you have to refine that process and get better fruit, I guess. It was normally me getting a test message at 7 o'clock at night from the brewers asking if they can get a bar stuff tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, to help break down some fruit. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it might have been that, to be honest. <laughs> now, we did have a very specific uh, bar staff type question come from uh, James, JC the beer guy. If you don't know him already through other social media uh, formats, check him out and, and find those. He's asked about the jam jar pints that were at the brewery back in the day. <laughs> were, you, were you there back in those days and do you want to claim responsibility or is that something that liquor licensing wouldn't want you to sort of admit to? 
No, well, it's pretty funny because, I mean, Batch is, what, six and a half years old now. Um, and so Chris and Andrew are the two owners that started the brewery who basically, from the get-go, did everything themselves. They were brewing the beer, serving the beers, delivering the beers. Um, and they didn't really come from, a, like, a hospitality or bar background. Background. So, like, the bar aspect of Batch was kind of an afterthought, really. Um, and so they just saw jam jars they could grab heaps cheap and so that's like our original tasting crate and uh like smaller pours were the jam jars basically um and i think they've popped a lot of flack off it um over the years but um before both of our times here we graduated up to like some proper glassware and sort of this <laughs> uh standard pour glass we have in the room so we, 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 yeah, definitely step that up. But it's uh, it's one of those things that people love to um, to remind us of. And actually, at the moment, I've still got the jam jars, but they're the water glasses in the bar, so we can't let them all go. But yeah, <laughs> James looks suitably exasperated. So <laughs> I actually had to reorder some jam jars, and that gave the boys a bit of a heart attack because I thought I was doing something a bit crazy there. But yeah. <laughs> You're, uh, last time I was at your brewery, I think I got water in a jam jar and I'd heard so many stories about beer in the jam jars. I was kind of disappointed, but then I got a tasting paddle and it was in this massive slab of timber. And I, all yeah. of a sudden I was like, you know, so excited about having the world's probably largest and weightiest beer paddle. Like it's, it's yeah. quite impressive. Um the beer paddles are actually all made from uh, broken pallets. Mm. So it's actually one of our staff members that made all of those, um, all of the, the tasting crates. And they, you carry three of them and you can feel it, trust me. <laughs> but yeah, they're actually um, just all uh, recycled pallets that were just broken down and lying around the brewery. So we turned them into, um, into our, our tasting crates. As, as always, we graduate and do things a bit more, uh, a bit more serious as we go along. Uh, when we opened up Small Batch last year, we actually got one of our regulars who's a carpenter to, to make us specific uh, tasting tasting uh, crates for that as well. But um, yeah, which got very serious and it was multiple designs and iterations. But um, yeah, it was just more because no one wanted to put their hand up to make make the palette ones again. They were, <laughs> they were very impressive. I was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we still got them. They're going well. Oh, good to hear. That's good. <laughs> Now, I reckon this might be the appropriate time to sort of signal to people that we're going to move on from the Pash to the Beastie Boysenberry in a moment. So prime your glasses and uh, get everything ready to do that. And um, we've got a few more questions to ask the guys about the sour style and how it's developed in Australia and for that matter around the world. It was fascinating a, a little while ago to have that chat with uh, Sierra Nevada and get their opinions on whether they felt the need to follow a trend or not. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and, and do that. That's just my little sort of tip that there's some great things to listen to in some of those previous ones while I pat out and make sure that everyone has the right beer in front of them. And um, I might throw in another sour kind of reference and, and back reference to a... You're just sour, you're just sour yeah. that you've arrived late I'm and I just gave yeah. a little bit of, you know, a little bit <laughs> away in. A bit of shtick. Um, yeah, uh, Batch is actually, Batch has got a, there's a couple of seconds for this podcast. It's a, probably the, the second, Liam's the second Chicharroni we've had on, on uh, the podcast. But it's the second brewery's, brewery who's tried a Ban Me beer. You guys did a Ban Me Sour. I don't think it was that long ago. <laughs> so there's, um, 
Well, I think we would all debate probably the best by me, uh, um, but depending on where in Sydney you are, that it can be a pretty fierce um, argument. But there's uh, it's called Maracle Pork Roll, and they actually have I think they've got the two shops in Maracle and one in the city now as well. But it's literally like a, a hole in the wall thing that people line up for, yeah. and there's literally a little hole that you, you reach in, um, and they make an amazing bar me, and it's like. Uh, I've worked in a few jobs around Marrickville and a previous job, which is actually in a building next, next door to the brewery, it was actually part of our code of conduct that it was a sackable offence to not offer to buy anyone else a Marrickville pork roll if you went and got one for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, yeah. yeah. So that uh, Marrickville pork roll was a beer that we did for, for Gabs about three, four years ago. Maybe 2016 Gabs or 2015 yeah. Gabs, I'm not sure. Definitely up there with one of the most polarising beers we've done before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, it was a beer that the guys spent a lot of time working on in the background where we did a lot of test batches on a pilot system mm. of uh, sour infusions of the individual components of a pork roll so there was like a, a pickled uh, pickled onion one there was a bread one there was um uh, even the, the pate where they made a, a bone broth beer that Ooh. actually had like um like some beef fat and stuff like that in it as well um and then blended them all back together to make miracle pork roll um wow. yeah we've made it made, we've made it once in uh, my time there that would have been um maybe 2017 2018 i can't remember it just is a bit of a a hollaback to um to that beer and it felt very unnatural um i hadn't brewed anything like that before and when i go back to the files and you look at the recipe it says calls for you know x amount of pork broth and and you know carrots and it felt terrible it felt <laughs> awful. It was every everything i had and knew about being a brewer and you're throwing like you know reduced fat into a beer it just felt very unnatural but it worked <laughs> Having, having made chicken ales and beef and orange ales in the past, you really yeah. learn how to keep your system clean when uh, <laughs> you've got to do things like that. So Now, I'm going to presume that everyone has the boysen bowie, uh, boysen bowie, the boysen berry in front of them. Um, in which case, Trav, I'm going to handball to you, mate. Do you want to take the lead on this one? I can certainly take the lead. I'm, I'm sitting here uh, looking at both the Pash and the Boysenberry side by side. And the colour range is just yeah. completely different ends of the spectrum. It's, it's, it's quite impressive. It, it looks, looks great. Um, obviously, we're going from, you know, one sort of sour to another, which is quite amazing. I'm, I still can't sort of get over the, what I'm seeing in front of me. So we'll, uh, I'll try to get back on track. Um, do you guys want to give us, to start with, just a bit of a... An, a notion on what we should be tasting in relation to what we just had versus what we're having now, because I feel like this discussion point is going to be quite interesting. Yeah, I think um, uh, what stands out the most to me with these two beers is that, I mean, I find Pash originally is, is, is almost like a subtle style of sour. Uh, and then you, Boysenberry is, it's got much more of that sweet punch. It's much more jammy. Um, berries in general are much uh, richer, brighter, um, more heavy hit, hitting fruit um, in a beer. And particularly, there's, there's quite a lot uh, in this beer as well. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's certainly a lot more fruit than we would normally use. Um, 
but something that stands out to me primarily is the jamminess when you drink it. Um, I think of uh, jam donuts. Do so you get that? You bite into a donut, yeah. and you get that jammy explosion. That always reminds me, of, you know, of that feeling when I drink this beer. But the other thing is it has a creamy mouthfeel, and that's actually a big difference between these two beers. Is this one um, is back sweetened with lactose, and lactose is a milk sugar. Uh, which is unfermentable by brewer's yeast. So you end up having a residual sugar in there. So not only do you have any unfermentable sugars by the grain, the fruit, you've also added in uh, that lactose as well, which just maintains that, that creaminess. Um, I think that adds to that full palate. Pash ends up, you know, often finishing, uh, it leaves the, leaves the palate really quickly, but boysenberry just has a little bit more of a silkiness and it fills the mouth a little bit better. Um, yeah, it makes it really nice to drink. I like it. Yeah, yeah. The, the sour style sort of in, in general in Australia has sort of taken off over the last sort of couple of, couple of years. And I kind of feel with your beers, you know, if we're sitting here with the boysenberry and the pash side by side, the balance of both of them is perfect for what they are. We get sort of breweries out there that, you know, focus more on the sourness than they do on the balance of the beer. You, you guys have taken this whole thing where you, you've decided not to go super sour and just sort of balance everything out a bit. And, you know, how did that all sort of come about? How did you go from, you know, not being super sour and being sort of perfectly, perfectly balanced? Um, I think it's, it's, we've definitely worked with berries a lot, um, doing chapeau every year. Um, I mean, Batches always use a lot of different fruit and things like beer. So I think we have a good formula to figure out how it's going to work. And, and ultimately, you just have to test. Um, you have to test, you know, the base beer or you find a beer, a commercial beer that's, that's uh, similar and you just have to add fruit and figure it out as you go along. You don't always get it right. Um, and sometimes, I mean, you know, I might taste one of our beers and be like, okay, I think I'd tweak this next time or, you know, so the next time I'll do that. But um, yeah, I mean, that sort of like discovery process, it's just, it is really just trial and error. And we brew so many different beers, we just have to go off the best information we, we have on hand. I think yeah, also, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, as the brewery's gone on, I think balance has been a really focus, a big focus that the brew team have had on our beers. And like, we use a lot of big fruits and big flavors and some, yeah, some, some will say some pretty crazy ingredients in our beers, but there's always a balance to those beers. I think it's a bit of a, a maturity as the brewery's gone on at six and a half years. That um, Yeah, the brew team, like, no matter what we do, balance is sort of a big component to that. And I think this is a great example of a big extreme beer and flavour that can still have some balance to it as well. Yeah, perfectly. You just answered my, my uh, follow-up question there, so perfectly done. Um, thunder. <laughs> That's okay. That doesn't happen too often on this podcast where we, you know, the guys just go off on a tangent and start answering the questions before you ask them. So that's, that's perfect. <laughs> um, you know, you, you spoke just then about, uh, you know, beers that you brewed that you taste them and they probably don't make it. Have there been sort of multiple beers over the time where, you know, you've got to a point where you've just gone, as a sour, this doesn't work and we're not going to release it? Um, I think that we haven't uh, we haven't really not released anything that hasn't worked. Um, I think we would we haven't put any sort of ridiculously crazy fruits. I mean, if if it's a sweet fruit and it has a nice flavour, it's going to work in a beer. I mean, ultimately, like you look if you enjoy eating a fruit, it's it's going to work well in a beer. Um, we 
haven't used anything too outrageous that, that, that hasn't worked. I mean, doing a marital pork roll is certainly an, an extreme end of all. <laughs> what I, I feel like this is, we got to keep going back to this. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but, but, um, but there, actually, I think we've been pretty fortunate to uh, not have any um, combinations that don't work. We did have uh, a coffee beer that was uh, coffee that was going into a pale beer that we thought wasn't quite right. Um, so that one never made it to the market, but um, fortunately that was only a very small size at our um, smaller brewery, small batch, which only makes about 350 liters, which is like a quarter of the size yeah. of um, the single batch at Miracle. So that's you know beneficial in that sense to have that. But, um, just just a question without a uh, question without notice. Um, that small, how how does that translate? That small three hundred liter translate into the bigger one. I'm sure you guys do a lot of test batches, and we've discussed this on the podcast before. Um, is it as easy as just multiplying it out, and then bang, you've got a multiplying the ingredient volumes out, and then you've got it, or is it a little bit more? Um, is it a little bit more science to it? Um, it is. It is. Pretty much multiplying it out, yeah. I know um, we know that uh, there are some subtle differences with when when you when you're putting something into a tank, whether it be coconut or um, some sort of flavoring. We some, we do find that there's difference in flavor extraction depending on the dimensions of the tank. Um, so we know that we have had to leave coconut in the larger tanks at Marrickville for a little bit longer. Just I think physical time of it moving through the tank. Um, you have to account for that. But in terms of the raw ingredients and what you use, we I start off by doing a quick calculation to give me a rough estimate of where that number's gonna land for how much grain I might use. And then I'll tweak those numbers slightly so it might end up being a convenient amount. So it's like, you know, seven 25 kilo bags instead of having like 7.2 or something. Um, uh, that's that's about as complex as, as, as it gets, but um, I'd say yeah, the, the the most difficult part is is when you're using something to get the right flavor extraction. So um, just recently, I brewed a lemon meringue pie beer, which has had two versions at small batch. Um, I'm yet to see how those flavors have translated into a larger tank. So um, so far, it smells good, um, but uh, uh, it's never exact. But it's it's pretty pretty close. Sorry, yeah, I think, no, I was just going to say, yeah, maybe how's my level so far? We can edit that bit out. Sorry, guys. Um, how's that level? Thanks, Trav. Perfect. I don't want to be too shouty, more shouty than I normally am. Shouty, shouty. So, so uh, this is what happens when you come in midway through a podcast. You don't get yeah, to... Yeah, totally. Right? Oh. No, two sound check. That's, that's it. You're quite loud as well, Trav. That's just the record. Am I? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. That's something. Bring your pop shield back from the mic a little bit, bud. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> now that we've uh, obviously now that we've worked oh, out how to, for me. now that we've moved on from our technical difficulties, <laughs> like the first one we've done, really. Um, uh, Liam and Tom, we've been doing this for a while. This isn't our first. Fifty <laughs> <laughs> like episodes. <laughs> Um, uh, David, one of our guys in, uh, in the zoom room asked about, um, he was saying cherries were obviously too expensive in Australia, but, um, have you guys, uh, ever tried making a Belgian crack? Oh, no, we, we have done a cherry sour, cherry day blige, um, a lot of our fruited sours have a lot of hip hop references, um, mm. 
in their names. But yeah, um, so we have done a, a, a cherry kettle sour. Um, we haven't done a creek because we haven't really played with like mixed culture fermentation yeah. in our brewery. At this stage with the, with the equipment that we have, um, there's certainly a high risk of um, contaminating other clean beers. Uh, so beers that have a predictable fermentability or a predictable character. When you start moving into mixed cultures or uh, wild yeast, you do have the potential to infect the rest of your brewery. Um, and that's why kettle souring is, is really good. Uh, Can I just interrupt for a moment there? You just, can we go back one stage for people who perhaps haven't encountered creek yeasts and other things before? A 30-second explanation of what the difference is when you're sort of dealing with the kinds of things you're describing there. Um, well, if we're talking about a, a creek, that's a style. We're talking about a clike yeast. Um, that'll be something entirely different. Um, so the, the, the creek style is the, is the Belgian cherry lambic. Yeah. Yes, yeah, Belgian cherry lambic. Um, which would be a, a mixed culture fermented on cherries for extended periods of time um, and often blended with young and old sours. Um, but the, uh, the Kvike yeast is a, is a Norwegian farmhouse yeast, which ferments at, well, 40 degrees, up to 40 degrees, which is pretty unusual. And that's still fairly new to the market. Um, uh, they've been sitting on it up there in the north for, you know, since the 80s, enjoying their... Where it's so warm. You know, it's so we're, we're so warm, enjoying their lovely two-day ferments and making lovely IPAs, but um, haven't shared it with the rest of the world. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it's quite it's quite impressive, really, um, what you can do with that yeast. Yeah, I think uh, there a couple of reasons why we haven't done a, a creek before, or like those Belgian like mixed culture sours, is a a bit of a space issue because um, we just don't have the space, even though we have two breweries and the warehouse, which is the second office is where we're sitting now. Um, we just don't have the space to store barrels for an extended period of time. Um, yeah, and also that sort of, uh, ideally that's something that the brewer would like to go into and maybe have a specific site for doing these beers to separate that from the rest of like the clean beers, I guess we could say that we, that we brew as well. Are you hinting that's in the works? Yeah. It Oh, um, uh, look, I think it's, it's, it's difficult to say because, you know, spaces <laughs> at the that's moment, like, if, if it was going to happen anywhere, um, it would probably be at small batch and they wouldn't be the, um, the really big 200 litre barrels. They'd probably be smaller, maybe mm. 150. I mean, funnily enough with barrels, the smaller you go, the more expensive they become because they're rarer. Mm. Um, so, uh, around the 50 litre barrel, you're probably looking at a fair, fair price, but I'd love to have a couple of 50 litres just so you could have, you know, select mixed culture kegs or maybe even like an old bourbon barrel so you could do a nice bourbon barrel aged stout or something oh, like that. So, so I mean if I can convince the two owners to go and buy me a bunch of barrels I'll be very happy man there must be there must be somewhere along the drag in Merrickville that you could uh, you could lease out and open a secondary brewery in Chile. Not, not a lot of space left in Merrickville anymore <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine my breweries it's <laughs> Merrickville cool ship too, just sitting in the middle there, sucking out all the air from, from around Merrickville. Yeah. Airport well, cool like ship. We have, um, well, uh, Wildflower Brewery, which is, uh, so Topher is actually an ex-brewer, an ex-staff member of Batch, um, which is around the corner from us. Um, but Topher actually brews all his wort, so his unfermented beer at Batch, and then <laughs> trucks it over to his uh barrel room where it goes in the barrels and so like tofu was brewing today 
yeah. did like three three batches today, I think. Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, so like it could be a thing where you know we might be able to leverage some of his space to ferment that those types of beers away from all our clean beers or something like that. The problem is, I think if 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 uh, I went and brewed a beer and then took it to Topher, it would probably taste like one of Topher's beers because he's such a unique culture that mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to introduce something of my own. So um, it'd be really difficult. <laughs> So we've got the we've done the we've done the passion we've done the boysenberry. Is, is there another sort of sour that you guys, or a fruit that you want to use in a sour that you haven't done yet? Is there something on the radar that is either in the pipeline or something that's sort of in your minds that you haven't really experimented with yet? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I really wanted to do a uh, uh, maybe trying out a sour on nitro. So I think that'd be a lot of fun and just oh, yeah. totally texturally very different. Um, and then maybe like playing around with that texture and working with more of a milkshakey sort of character. So you could do like a mango passion fruit or something nitro sour. That's not really branching out in the fruits that we've used before. Um, but certainly texturally, that's sort of where I was going to play. But um, fruit wise, I think, uh, I mean, we've, we've dabbled in conversations about using, you know, native Australian um, ingredients, um, finger limes, mm. or, you know, just, it, it, there's so much out there. Um, and how you can bring that into a beer would be certainly the next path I'd like to follow. Um, but it, that certainly requires a bit of experimentation to figure out exactly what those flavours are. Um, it can be quite difficult to get that right. I, I might jump in quickly. In terms of, what, you mentioned the nitro there, and we'll get on to talk about a little nitro a little more later, but, but what's the process in, I've always wondered, is it just simply changing the tank from carbon dioxide to, to nitrous oxide? Is it, is it just simply that or is there more to it when you, when you introduce, when you make a nitro beer for a can? Um, it, it is essentially, yeah. So, so most beers that we do are, are carbonated with CO2 and that, that'll give you almost like a, you know, that larger bubble feeling. Um, when you use nitrogen, we have to be careful with how many, how, the, the quantity of CO2 that's left in solution in a beer at the end of fermentation. So um, fermentation uh, will uh, end up with, you know, significant amount of CO2 if you've left the tank closed up and all that CO2 is absorbed into liquid. Hmm. So you have to be really conscious when doing a, a nitro beer um, to just make sure that, that CO2 is, has the ability to, to move out of the tank and doesn't get absorbed into the beer as much. Um, and from that point on, what we do is, is the different process is in the packaging tank primarily. Um, where instead of carbonating a beer uh, with CO2 that it goes through a carbonation stone. So it's a very, very fine, almost like a very fine um, membrane stone that will put CO2 or nitrogen into solution very quickly. Uh -huh. um, instead of putting CO2 through that stone, you'll put through nitrogen. And then it's, you can, you know, we have equipment that can measure the quantity of CO2 and nitrogen in solution. Um, but nitrogen is very much textural and visual. So you have to do a lot of sensory to see how that, um, how it actually works, how it pours into the glass. Does it look right? Does it taste right? Um, so you are, I mean, there is always an element of uh, CO2 in the beer and sometimes you need that bit of CO2 to lift out the nitrogen. Um, but the nitrogen itself, that's what you're you know, pushing into the beer. Right. Um, on that note, should we move on to, it's not a nitrogen beer, but are we going to... I guess, well, first of all, I'd just say we had the nitrogen IPA early before we were, before you guys all joined us in the room. 
So that was just magnificent. I don't think I've had a nitro IPA before, no. and so I've, unless I've had one and forgotten about it, which I don't think I have. Um, but just one maybe closing question about sours is that that's a style that wasn't on the Australian market much, maybe five years ago. You certainly had to hunt them out if you really wanted to. How do you feel about how the, that style is being received? And, you know, do you think it's going to keep kicking goals or is it going to be one of those sort of strange ones, you know, you know where a style comes and goes in a summer, you know, more like a, a brute IPA style? I think, I mean, for me, I don't feel that the sales are going anywhere. They're too, um, they're too drinkable. They're too uh, exciting with what you can actually do with them. Um, and even then, you've got so much room to play with the different souring cultures that you use. I mean, we had some early sours that were originally soured using the lactobacillus from yogurt. Um, we've uh, used, uh, you know, different cultures in the brew. We've got our one house culture, which is Pash and Boysenberry which will um, sour in about four hours. And even that gives a, a different character to something else that might be a little bit slower. But I mean, the, the, the takeoff for sours in Australia has so much been around the ability to do kettle souring effectively um, and have a short period rather than having those long traditional, you know, aging in, in, you know, in Belgium where you've got them in barrels and the mixed cultures and it takes a long time to get a nice, good sour. The kettle souring is a lot more control. You can do it in a clean brewery. Um, and you can play with so many different ingredients to, to, you know, develop a whole new beer, really. Do you guys feel that um, Australia is kind of leading the way a bit when it comes to sour beers? I was listening to a podcast from the US a little while ago, and they kind of feel like they're only just sort of starting their sour journey over there, whereas we've kind of been in the sour journey now for, for 12 months or so. Do you guys, from, from your knowledge, feel that um, here in Australia we are we're kind of a bit on the forefront of, of the sour market? I think we're a little different. I think we approach sours a little differently. I think, I mean, there's plenty of kettle souring going on in the US, but I think they're really into their barrel culture. Um, and they have a really just, so that there's so many great breweries that are, that are producing super complex barrel aged beers um, with mixed culture ferments that are just, you know, ridiculous. And they also love them really sour, like enamel strippingly sour. I mean, I took a pH meter and measured some of those. And some of them are below three pH. And that on the sour scheme is really sour. Um, I mean, Pash as a point of comparison is uh, 3.4 um, on average. Hmm. Um, but yeah, something below three is, is significantly sour. But I mean, what's your Yeah, I think, um, well, A, I think the reason why sours aren't going anywhere in Australia is it's just such a perfect style of beer for a climate here. Um, and it just, that makes a lot more sense in Australia than some other places of the world. And I think sort of kettle sours, we are sort of leading the charge in doing that. Um, as Tom mentioned, sort of like those more barrel-aged sours and that stuff in the States, there are some leading breweries that are really leading world-class stuff uh, in those styles of beers. And I think it's more about access to barrels, real estate, and some other factors that have lent to that as well. Um, the economics of being able to hold onto a beer and not sell it for three to five years being one of those things. Um, but um, yeah, I just think it, it suits our climate so well. So that kettle sour, or that quicker sour style, definitely, I think there's a lot more of it here in Australia. Um, but yeah, just, it just, just works for our climate. Yep. Absolutely. There's something about a sour on a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock and you have to go to work on Monday. 
But if they're three and a half, four percent, you can have a couple of pints and not feel too guilty about it. And yeah, wake up the next do, you, do you, David? Do you have to go to work on Monday? Oh, I wish I did, but let's not delve into the terrible <laughs> situation that the Victorian economy is in right now. Because you know me, no, I don't. No, I don't. I have to get up in time for homeschooling, which is perhaps even more confronting for getting up for actual, you know, work work at the moment. <laughs> Actually, the guy said earlier about um, someone coming into the brewery, uh, the dad and Dave from Dad and Dave's coming into the brewery to have a pint the other day, and I was going to make mention for our listeners that. Um, that's what you can do in every other state apart from Victoria at the moment is go into a brewery and have a beer. For now, the reason why we're here in the office, not the brewery, is because the brewery is full of people having a beer at the moment. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thanks for rubbing that in there. <laughs> now, I'm going to do my little hosty thing at the moment and introduce one of our co-hosts, Warren Wu. You may have heard him come in earlier on in the podcast. Uh, but Warren's here to officially ask all of the questions about the next beer that we're going to be having. So if you haven't already got a can of the Big Kahuna in your hands, I'm tempted to go and get my Big Kahuna T-shirt that I earned by way of my intercollegiate volleyball title uh, in 1993. But let's just let that pass by. Make sure you have one of those Big Kahuna coconut brown ales in your hand. And um, Mr. Warren, I'm going to hand over you to do the good work on this one. Thanks, David. Yes, that's, um, yeah, the big hoona. Uh, so coconut brown owl. Um, when we think of brown, when we normally think of nut brown owls, particularly Melbourne, the rogue, the rogue hazelnut brown yeah. comes straight to mind. And the reason I use it as a comparison is because this is a different beast altogether. Not not nearly as sweet or as as thick as the hazelnut brown owl. Carve a lot a lot cleaner and definitely a lot drier. Um, that nuttiness that 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 coconut comes through like that bounty flavour, that chocolate coconut flavour really comes through. Um, is it? And it feels more like a beer than a a, a confectionery to me. Give us the thoughts on that and have i hit the nail on there is that is that what what the the brewery's thinking um bounty for sure yeah bounty is a great descriptive word that we use um and like i think tom can talk in a sec about the the evolution of this beer because it has changed a bit and this year's version of big kahuna has has been a big change as well um but big kahuna is a coconut brown now that we release every winter so it's a sort of yearly release that comes around at winter um, and the origin of that is, so Chris and Andrew, the two owners of the brewery, uh, both being American, um, Hawaii is a great point for them to catch up with their family. And so, uh, Maui Brewing, uh, do a coconut, um, coconut porter. And that was sort of the inspiration behind this beer because, you know, they, uh, Hawaii is a point where they can sort of, it's a middle point where they can catch up with their family and smash a lot of Maui coconut porter. And that's an 8% beer. It's a big one. But um, so, yeah, the idea is like sort of in the middle of winter where it's dreary and cold and you, that you're thinking about being on a beach in Hawaii somewhere, this is the beer that they brewed to, to get to that point, I guess. Um, and it bookends with the tiny coconut bubbles, which is a coconut wheat beer we do in the middle of summer as well. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, flavour-wise, definitely that sort of uh, lighter chocolatey aspect uh, comes through. Um, and it's... It's not a dessert beer, I think is a good way to put it. No. Yeah, because it's, um, it's, it's not overly sweet. Yeah. It's not. 
but then it's bigger, bigger brother or bigger sibling being the huge kahuna, uh, which is the imperial version with cacao nibs added as well, is uh, a different beast altogether. But yeah, and a beast is probably a good way to put it. But, but, um, but yeah, I think Tom could probably talk through a bit about some of the technical things and what how this beer's evolved to get to where it is now. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that is clear about it is that um, that it, visually it's, it has that brown color. It's almost maybe even some ruby highlights as well. But what's it, what I find interesting about this beer is that it's actually, when you think of a brown owl, it's actually not not even quite a brown owl. Brown owl's uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more of an English style um, and they traditionally use like a brown malt or something. And this one we've, we've uh, and often I find in Australia as well, brown owls are more of a visual identifier rather than um, a style. But um, you certainly couldn't call it anything else. It's not quite the porter. Um, it's not really an amber. Um, uh, and it certainly is in between those. And that's where you sort of hit your brown owl style. Um, I mean, this beer, yeah, this beer needed a little bit of um, a refresh. And that was what Liam was saying about this year. Um, we, haven't cha- we haven't changed anything drastic. It's still the, the big kahuna that people really know. But, I mean, this beer is based around having a... Uh, that balance between not being too sweet, not being too dry and having coconut on display, um, backed up by that, um, chocolatey, um, you know, uh, it doesn't have any roast in there cause that roast is coming from, um, that, that's what you'd normally find in a stout. So we try and we don't put any of that roast malted in there, mm. but you do get that a little bit more of like a crackery biscuit character coming through as well. And that's often the, um, the base malt, which is from Voyager. Um, they have, they have a really nice ale malt, which gives a little bit of a crackery character. Um, but the refresh we gave on this one was just to increase that body a little bit, a little bit more fullness on the palate. We had some feedback um, that previous batches were a little bit too thin. Um, some people felt that it was just lacking a little bit of mouthfeel. Um, and we counteracted that by adding oats, um, which is pretty new for this beer because it never actually had oats in it originally. Um, and if you're not familiar with what oats do, oats are almost like a very oily slick kind of um, grain when it, when it goes into a beer. Um, and it certainly helps to lift that mouthfeel quite significantly. Um, and the other very simple thing we did was we added more coconut. People said they wanted more coconut, so we added more coconut. Um, and that's, I mean, for me, it's like super pronounced coconut. And oh. it just, I think that oil in the coconut adds to that um, mouthfeel as well, that, that yeah. almost like slick character um, without it being too, sweet or too dry just sort of coats the mouth and you know it feels very full um you touched on the malt character and this is something when we tried the lc this is something that occurred to me or when we tried the lc in a previous podcast this is something that occurred to me um that that you guys tend to use like a a a range of malts to i i suspect add complexity and 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 mouthfeel is that is that a philosophy of of batch is that particularly with your darker beers is that something you like to do concentrate on a range of malts um yeah i mean there's there's certainly two arguments to when you're building a recipe if you um if you have too many malts you can just be a bit lost in the complexity of the beer and and not really have a clear path as to what you're trying to display um we have a lot of malts but i wouldn't say we use um I think the most, I guess, types of malts we've used in a beer is probably nine, and that's and that's at the upper limit of how many we'd use. Mm. Um, this beer itself, you're probably looking at uh, 
five different malts and that's like you know you're looking at your base malt which is um uh you know either an ale or a pale malt and you're looking at your um oats chocolate malt uh, a little bit of like a dextra malt which will give you a bit more fullness in the palate um and then a little bit of like a light crystal character which gives you almost like a honey character um so you have to yeah we do have a lot of malts on hand and and but i wouldn't say we um we use a a lot of things yeah, I mean, having having lots of mold on hand for us is great because it means we can be creative and really try and build a recipe based on, um, you know, it's, it's nice to actually walk up by the mill and you go up and you go open a bag and have a taste and, and just try out different things. Because when you when you chew the grain, you really get a character of what that's like and, and you can sort of pick and choose what you want to try and display in your beer. Terrific, awesome. Um, I have a question maybe about the feedback you were mentioning earlier on. How do you get that feedback? You know, is it from having venues or is it just from social media or just walking down the street and people chuck bottles at you and go, this I is find, coconut in your bastards or, you know? I find the two two best outlets for me, um, and they're often the most reliable, is listen to the staff. The staff will drink the beer all the time and um, they really have a good idea of what's changing, what's different, what could be better. Because they're also drinking other beers as well. I mean, they're not just sitting at Batch every night drinking Batch beers. They go over to other breweries around Marathon and taste their beers as well. And the other thing is we get feedback from customers, you know, pass through the staff as well. Customers in the bar and they'll say, you know, what it needs or what it's missing or what they like, what's missing on our tap lineup. Um, I do have a bit of a cruise to the untapped every now and then, but... Um, it's dangerous territory. It's dangerous territory. And it can be a little, you know, I like to think I'm pretty thick skinned. I don't worry too much about what people say, but. Um, it's interesting from the point of view because we've got a number of breweries who come on and have their own venues. Mm. And some of them make a real effort to go out there and stand around and listen to what people are saying and be part of yeah. those discussions. And some go, no, no, we're not, we're doing. So it's just sort of interesting from that point of view. It's certainly, yeah. I mean, like talking to customers is certainly very valuable. And even then, we've got a bunch of regulars that have that are really honest um, with, with our beers. But the only thing I say is like, when it comes to feedback and being a brewer, there's nothing more, there's nothing more valuable than getting honest feedback. I mean, like when you say, oh, what do you think of beer? Oh, it's good. It's like, I can't do anything with that. Like, why is it good? You know, what's like, what is it that you like about it? What is it you don't like about it? How can it be improved? So, I mean, get any sort of feedback, whether it's like, you know, you're not gonna hurt our feelings. We know not everyone will like our beer, but like, it's, it's just so valuable to get good feedback. Yeah, yeah we, we sort of um, like the tasting rooms are really, we've really tried over the years to harvest that sort of open conversation. And, um, you know, we do a lot of training with the bar team to not be preachy and to like engage in conversation. Um, and so we try and make the bar team be a lot of a conduit to that. And they will either uh, go talk to brewers directly. Um, you know, I spend that. Seventy percent of my time on the bar, and the other thirty percent doing administrative stuff. So I, and I'm involved in a lot of stuff, and we'll pass on a lot of the, a lot of feedback to the to the brewers as well. But um, when we're not in uh, apocalyptic times, we, I always try and re- really push to get the brewers to come and do like a couple of hours in the bar, which we've done uh, like brewers nights where each of them have to do a night and stuff like yeah. that as well. And I actually really enjoy that because we, yeah, we did that a handful of times um, probably about a year ago, and it mm. was really good because I got to. Um, Fortunately, I'm a bit useless on the bar, so they scheduled an extra person on to cover me. But, you know, I was pretty good at standing around having a chat. He so, does a good um, lean on the bar, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, I do a very good <laughs> lean. It was, um, it, was, it was valuable from that perspective. Could, can, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting across my co-hosts here, but one of the things that we, we love to know on the 
this podcast is there's a whole lot of people who want to get involved in the industry. And Tom, we can guess all the work that you've done to get your job and so forth. But Liam, you have that kind of dream job that everyone wants, which is working apparently <laughs> around a bar and getting to drink a lot of beer and talk to people doing. Yeah. How did, you find yourself, how did you find yourself at Batch? What brought you to be at Batch right here? Um, well, I'm actually in my second stint for working for Batch. Um, and I luckily got asked to come back to Batch um, when we were opening a second venue to sort of head up running both venues. But um, I definitely have cut an interesting path where I don't have to make beer but still get to talk about beer a lot, which is <laughs> what I love doing. But... <laughs> Um, but I've come from a, from a hospitality, hospitality background, um, runs uh, some bottle shops and stuff like that. So there's a, a small group of independent bottle shops called Camperdown Cellars in Sydney. They have, I think, six stores now. Um, and I was managing their main store um, and was sort of getting into my beers, getting into my wines and sort of had some, I wanted to focus in on one of those things. And at the time, wine just seemed really snooty and there was a lot of rules and very mm. like pompous, whereas beer was like a bit more cowboy and you can sort of have a bit more fun and make up the rules as you go along. And that was definitely more towards my vibe. Um, yeah, and so have done a fair bit of studies. Um, yeah, uh, sat my Cicerone qualifications, got my uh, certified Cicerone degree. Uh, that's that's how you pronounce it. Cicerone. Yeah, because I'm never game enough to figure out how to do it. <laughs> I believe it's a Latin, Latin to serve, I think is what it is. But yeah. And, um, but yeah, and I was actually... Kind of, turn up and can't say the right thing at the door when you walk in. <laughs> yeah. I actually did a, a lot of training um, and was uh, facilitating a lot of the sister and stuff in Australia. And I actually still to this day proctor all the sister and exams in New South Wales as well. So. You did what? I uh, proctor the exams, so I run the exams for people uh, to, so which they do about twice a year. And it's a pretty full on, the certified Cicerone exam, it's like a three hour written, hour and a half tasting exam. So it's a pretty, pretty full on. Are you proctor a Latin word or a Serb word? <laughs> <laughs> Sound like my kind of exam. But yeah, so um, yeah, I was lucky enough, I, I had worked for Batch part-time previously um, and my previous job from coming back to Batch was working uh, at a brewery tour company and uh, running Sydney Beer Week, which is sort of the equivalent of Good Beer Week in Melbourne. And um, the actual, the headquarters for both of those businesses is literally the building behind Batch. So I think I spent more time drinking at Batch when I wasn't working for Batch than when I did. <laughs> <laughs> Held a lot of meetings in Batch, but uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, lucky uh, Chris and Andrew, um, who I've always kept in good contact with, sort of when they had the new project of the second site coming on, asked if I'd be keen to come back and uh, head up running the two venues, which is about a year and a half ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, well, who is it? Shana Miller's uh, in, our, in our Zoom room has come up with a cracker of a question. Um, going back to the feedback uh, that you're getting, have you had any feedback that you genuinely disagree with? Is there something that keeps on coming up and you just think, well, that's bullshit? Uh, and what is it? Yeah, let's, 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 in, let's, let's in on that one side. Hard seltzers. I was wondering make... when we get back to this, this has yeah. become a bit of a theme of late. The yeah. uh, David mentioning the hard seltzers. Like, 
It, it's, and it's not it's like it's it's alcoholic water. Like there's there's get yourself a I don't know. <laughs> Dave, stop it. Right, back on track. <laughs> so, <Killing> it. <laughs> it. <laughs> it's more the league of the 2020s. Like um, yeah. as a place in the market. Um, uh, yeah, look, I, I think we sometimes get some feedback that we don't always agree with, but um, I think a lot of that comes down to just sometimes people don't know how to verbalize what they're trying to, mm. trying to what they're tasting, which is, um, you know, that sort of, uh, that language of talking about what you, what your brain's getting, it's practice, like, you know, yeah. doing tastings and, uh, you know, drinking beers with other people that you can discuss with, like we're doing now is how you learn that vocabulary. Um, and so sometimes, like, a person will come up to the bars like, oh, I don't like hoppy beers, but they'll try a West Coast IPA, which is really bitter, and go, oh, mm. that's exactly what I like. So it's about learning that, getting them to explain it in a way that you understand what they're saying. And so, I always say cop out just to pour people a sample of the beer because if I can't talk to them and my staff can't talk to them to explain it, then it's just a bit of a cop out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, that's one challenge we've had. And sometimes um, people don't get why we've changed things or the reason behind some of the stuff. And sometimes it just takes a simple conversation that makes things a lot clearer. But I don't think I've ever read something that's like, that's completely false. Um, yeah, not. I mean, like from a from a technical perspective, I think. Like, what was there that I like? Yeah. Yeah. I love. Yeah. It was that time that they said, "Why did you take up making butter? <laughs> Clearly, beer isn't your thing." <laughs> um, I think, like the uh, yeah, the, there might have been a few technical things I didn't necessarily agree with. Um, someone said they could taste something, and and I didn't, but. That doesn't mean they're wrong. It doesn't mean they can't taste it. But um, uh, it's feedback is one of those things where um, you don't necessarily have to agree, but you can take it on board and 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 you know uh, take it in your stride and, and see if it, you know just keep it there. And if, if it works, it doesn't. But you know, yeah, it's it's one of those things. I think the only one I really disagreed with was where um, what was it? I think someone said it. A beer, what was it? I made a, a stout. It was a, it was a gingerbread stout, and someone on Untap said it tasted um, too much like gingerbread. And I thought, well, what's that? <laughs> that's, a, that's my chicken beer story. I made a chicken yeah. beer. Yeah. So that's enough. You know. Like if you have a big kahuna and you say that beer is rubbish because I hate coconut, it's not. Yeah, yeah um, that's not your name. Maybe that's coconut beer. Don't like coconut, but like yeah. That's, that's a great question because now that we've been tasting this for a while. And mine in particular is sort of, you know, warmed a little bit over the last sort of, you know, 20 minutes ago. It's tasting like a very different beer than when I got down mm. the bridge. So is, yeah. is that part of the attractiveness? It is for me about how a beer changes while you drink it. Or can you explain it now as opposed to 20 minutes ago? Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. But this is something I mentioned in the chat before about how they had started drinking it quite cold and sort of let it warmed up. Um, Sometimes it's not a bad thing to take your time and let it start cold because you get to experience it as it changes. Mm. Uh, once it's gone warm, you can't, it's a bit harder to get it back up cold again. But um, like a beer with this malt character definitely uh, will do with it a little bit of a warmer setting. Mm. Um, but it's, I like something sometimes having things cold, but letting it linger for a little while so you can see how it develops and changes as well. I find that quite interesting. 
you can taste so much more when something is an icy cold as well. I mean, that's like classic example of the big macro lagers that you often see. Um, they're all, you know, got their little branding that says served at negative, you know, yeah. whatever. And it's because you can't taste anything. You know, yeah. like it's it's, uh, it's it's just like totally numbs those taste buds as you drink it it's, they're designed to be thirst quenching yeah. whereas you know when you let something warm up you just get so much more flavor out of it um and often you actually in some cases you'll you'll find something that shouldn't be there and it's quite a useful tool to in the brewery to warm something up if you're looking for an off flavor yep good call um just um, a little comes through a lot better as it's warming up as well mm -hmm. the more mm -hmm. character just as a, a comment, I've, I've been working on wine and coffee and a little bit of beer for years. And I've just learned about, um, what was it? Acid, bitter confusion. People are actually confused between acid and bitterness. And you could imagine working for years within the industry and people just going, oh, that's a bit too bitter. Or, some, or often coffee's burnt and occasionally there might be a little bit too much acid there. And it's, it's, it's like, it's fascinating. I'm sure beer is the same in some of that feedback you're getting that people just, and it comes back to what you were saying, Liam, that tasting and just, just getting everyone kind of just to recognize what they're tasting and understanding what their palates are doing. It's, it's, it's really interesting you say that because there's, um, I mean, particularly when we were talking about sours, um, with the raw ingredients, sours don't actually require a lot of hops and if any hops at that, um, and the reason for that is because that sourness really balances out the um, sweetness of the malt. Um, I mean, traditionally, Belgian beers, um, some of them didn't have any hops in them at all. And if they were using hops, they were using very, very old hops, which actually had lost most of their bittering character um, completely. So, um, you know, people getting confused about, you know, like sour or bitter or acid and bitter. Um, I mean, they certainly both work fairly effectively to balance out a beer. Mm, totally. Alrighty. I think we might be heading towards our fourth beer of the conversation, which is the Elsie. So for people who are listening to the podcast and want to have a little, uh, little you know, pause, and for people who are in the podcast room with us who want to make sure they've got everything lined up properly, now's the time to make sure you go and grab one of those Elsies. This is a beer that uh, podcast listeners are well familiar with. I think most people all around Australia are well familiar with. But um, in case you didn't listen to our first conversation about this on the podcast, uh, Series 3, Episode 23, entitled Winter Warmer Dark Beers, where uh, Daniel Watson from Paleden Cooper, who's the distributors down here in Victoria, came on and introduced us to this beer and the Red IPA from Capital Brewing. You said Chris Bond from Moondog on talking about the Cake Hole Stout. Um, you can go back and hear some of our initial uh, thoughts about this beer in, in that one. Um, but this is just a cracker of a beer. Um, it's one that we can't keep in the fridges at the Royal Mail and Spencer long enough because as soon as people know we've got it, they come down and order it and take it away. I guess that's the idea about running a pub, but you know, it's <laughs> disappointing when at the end of the day you can't have the beer that you really wanted when you walked in, um, you know, eight hours earlier. Um, I'm going to hand over to Travis to lead the way on this beer. So off you go, mate. Thank you, David. I feel like uh, we are getting through the range. I do like the fact we've gone from uh, light to dark kind of thing. We've been across the spectrum this is 
probably one of my favorite stouts that does the rounds at the moment. Every time I, I have it, I absolutely love it. And I think that's probably the same for most people that are sort of listening in at the moment. Um, it is without a doubt a batch classic. It's um, in my mind, every time I, I think a batch, that's the first thing that sort of comes comes to mind. So why don't we start off with you guys telling us about the story about how this came about. Well, I think this one was, um, uh, as, as you said, it's an old beer and it's been around for a long time. Um, and this was uh, pretty much a Chris and maybe Topher original. Topher, think, Topher, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a Topher original. So um, this was uh, what Chris has described to me as the kitchen sink beer. It literally has everything in it. Um, and, I think, <laughs> and I'm just imagining like knowing Topher now, I wonder if it's because that, you know, in his haphazard way of, of brewing beers, he just sort of went, oh, a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of that. And sort of Elsie was born. Um, <laughs> just trying to make it, you know, black and stouty. Um, but uh, this, it does have um, a lot of uh, malts in it. It's probably the, um, on a, and it's certainly in our core range, it certainly has a, um, uh, a wide range of malts. I mean, you've got roast malt in there. Um, you've got chocolate, you've got um, crystals, you've got um, a little bit of uh, Vienna, for that uh, nice extra bit of toastiness. And of course the base malt is um, Voyager's Ale Malt. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot going on. But the thing is being a milk stout, it's also got the lactose in there as well. That we talked about earlier with the boysenberry. Um, and that lactose is what keeps that residual sweetness. Um, but uh, it's wonderful. It's a winter warmer. Um, I like that it's actually not too high ABV. Mm-hmm. That works well for me. I mean, I like I like a lower sessionable beer, but something that's around four was it four point four percent. It means you can have quite a few of them until Elsa's other udder comes out, and then I sort of get caught off guard <laughs> and end up, you know, <laughs> on on the fall. I think the, other- <laughs> <laughs> the other part of the story is that uh, Chris and Topher, so we were talking about Topher before, who is Wildflower, when he was brewing for us, they were pining over they this being the States and drinking a left-hand milk stout. So left-hand is a great brewery, um, I think East Coast um, in the States. And their, yep. their milk stout was probably one of the first craft beer of the style. Hmm. And they were complaining that being in Australia, they couldn't get their hands in some. So they wanted to brew their own, basically. And that's kind of, I think... I don't know if that's true. That's the story. I like the story. It sounds good. So go with that. <laughs> um, it's definitely a, a, I think there's batch fans and there's Elsie fans and they can be two separate things sometimes. Mm. Um, but it's uh, like, there are people who will come from overseas, uh, you know, being in America, we're pretty close to the airport. Uh, people come from interstate and like, regardless of day, time of year, they have to have a milk stout to start on. Um, and sometimes people come Come to batch and just drink milk stouts and don't touch nine of the other taps we have on all the 12 other beers and takeaways. And that's fine. If it makes them happy, it's great. Like, Anthony yeah. Albanese loves a good milk stout. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've seen him looking real good. I could imagine that, actually. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Albo, yeah. Like, it's great drinking this LC uh, at this time of year, but it's kind of like... It, doesn't it's one of those dark beers that doesn't quite down in um in, in summer as well and like if anyone has been the to batch america in the middle of summer it's bloody hot um yeah. it's basically yeah. a tin shed and uh we just sit there and sweat profusely but i've still 
than people in 45 degree heat drinking pints of Elsie. But I think that still plays into the idea of it being a lower ABV as well. Mm. I mean, those big chewy, like 7%, 8% um, stouts, they, you know, they tend to have their place in winter and you don't see them very often in summer, but Elsie being at four and a half, like it's, it's just very drinkable for what mm. it is. And don't, don't the Nigerian, the Nigerians are the ones that drink the more, most Guinness per head than any other nation in the world. African nations uh, smash dark beers. And it's like, yeah, it's like I, I'm half Sri Lankan and Lion or Singha Stout is a cracking dark beer. And same thing, it's like 100 degree humidity, 45 degrees, and people are sitting there drinking big toasted stouts, but it works. And you guys have it readily available all year round in the brewery, don't you? Like it is available, you know, it can be, yeah. you know, the middle of January and you've still got Elsie on tap. The only time we wouldn't have Elsie on tap is if we might have a variant of Elsie on tap. Um, this week's a great week because we've released um, both the Campos version of Elsie again this week and Elsie's other item, which is the Imperial Cacao uh, Elsie, um, yeah, both of those got released this week, and we can't keep up with it. Like I've gone through probably thirty cases in the last in the tasting room, and that's yeah. just taking stuff. Um, like, are there any Victorian venues that you're aware of that we can get those? Uh, I believe Palin Cooper is getting both both beers. Um, generally, I think for you, for Victorians, it's about like a sometimes a two and a half week lag in getting stock, but I'm 99% certain that Palin Cooper is getting So, uh, so what you're break. saying is that if I distribute uh, Dan's email address now and say, you've got to make sure that David gets some of this so that we can distribute it to all the listeners tonight. <laughs> yeah, definitely would, uh, would think we can make that happen. But yeah, um, yeah, and it's weird because we're talking before, I think Warren was mentioning about the similarities between coffee and beer and um campus is a, a great uh a great version of that not only because um us spending time with the, the team at campus and we have a lot of similar ethos but um there's one thing that can outdo beer nerds it's coffee nerds um, oh, yeah. <laughs> especially in melbourne uh, <laughs> i've had yeah, I've had I've had people drive from Canberra overnight to be the first ones waiting for us to open the door at ten o'clock in the morning and waiting outside for an hour and a half to get Campos beers, initially case, drink a pint of it, and then drive back to Canberra that day. Um, yeah, it's um, the the weird thing is, and you touched on this, Liam, before that coffee nerds are different to beer nerds or also different to wine nerds. They're all a different type of nerdiness. They're all yeah. like, I mean, they've all got their pluses and minuses, but yeah, they're all very different types of nerds. And they got whiskey nerds, which is another one. Oh yeah. Them, so. and, the, and they're the <laughs> most fun ones. I think they're the most awesome ones. Just quietly, just the, the, the whiskey nerds I know are the, uh, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're either old and decrepit or just young and completely out of their minds. They're just careful, yeah, careful, yeah. boring. You're on shaky ground here, uh, mate. <laughs> I, know, like, I, no, I love whiskey. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm a, I'm no whiskey nerd, but, yeah. but, Jesus, like, but when you get when you get in on a conversation with a whiskey nerd, it goes places where, where you know, mind boggles. I think the great thing yeah. is that unlike, say, 
beer nerds or coffee nerds or whiskey nerds, you know, that, that my kind of nerds, which are wrestling fan nerds, <laughs> no one in craft beer or you know, no, no one in coffee. No, they've got beards. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the baristas around Flemington recently, but they're pretty beardy. They're like, they're, they're, yeah, they're hipster beards. Which is kind we of... Have, um, we have spent a bit of time with the, the campus team, and I think Tom didn't get the chance to join us, but a few no, of us went and basically coming. spent a whole day at campus's head office, which is near the airport in Sydney as well. Um, and we we're talking about, you know, what I've done with Cicerone and there's some uh, coffee equivalents and one of their staff members was, I think, a week away from sitting his mm. coffee exam. And um, they have this incredible, like, I forget the terminology, but this room that's basically zero scent, zero sound, zero smell, where they do all their sensory stuff. It's, um, and he, we sat with him for an hour and he was dosing coffee with different types of acids. So he needed to be able to distinguish for his exam the difference between Lactic uh, acid, melolactic yeah. acid. Yeah, and it uh, made me have some pretty serious flashbacks and fear of my <laughs> Cicerone studies, but it was um, it was almost almost on another level, which was incredible again. So, um, yeah, and we have another coffee roaster, which is across the road from my brewery, Mackerel, which um, we have a very interesting with because uh, beer people need coffee and coffee people need beer. Um, but um, they often open early, like breweries as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> But um, the more and more you discuss with coffee roasters, and there's so many correlations between coffee and beer that are so yeah. similar. Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. But it's also what's great is that you also discover how little you know about each other's mm. world. Yeah. So you sit there just getting excited about what the other one is saying. So it makes for good conversation. I, I often, like when I've worked in, in hospitality and, and even wine and all types of alcohol, there's the, the key thing about them all is that that quality is almost judged exactly the same way of all of them. So there's there's four or five things. Oh, now I forget. I've had a few. Um, there's there's uh, you know balance, uh, complexity, intensity, um, and there's another one you throw in. Uh, so all of those things in all of the quality products we tend to digest. Uh, equal in all of them. So if you're looking for a great, if you're looking for a great coffee, the complexity is important. The intensity, oh, the length is the other one that's important. Same with beer, complexity, intensity, length, balance. Same with wine, intensity, complexity, length, balance. Um, and it also comes back to other stuff. Like a, a music mate of mine just goes, yeah, exactly the same thing with music. Like uh, music has to have an intensity. If it's complex, it's great. It doesn't mean it has to have a lot of notes, but really thoughtful notes. Um, you know, it's all those things all mash up. And I think that's where most of the nerds connect. That's where, like, we we understand that. Um, yeah, like, the wine nerds think they're better. Whiskey nerds are drunker. Coffee nerds just uh, uh, sometimes want to be wine nerds. But it all works out together, you know what I mean? It's, so yeah. All right, then that. Just I on, think coffee and beer have it cheaper to, to be a coffee than yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Oh, but <laughs> if you want to try geisha, if you want to try geisha, uh, like a, a single origin geisha, it's really. Uh, and the great thing about Lauren, you need to explain what that means. So, so that's a particular variety. Sorry, that's a particular variety of 
a coffee bean. And I can't remember. Yeah, it's not the one that you're thinking of, David. Thanks. Um, it's it's we're we're not even getting near Japan, but it's it is it's a really rare but really vibrant and fruity style of 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 uh, bean, which isn't grown in many places. I can't remember the exact origin, but they're expensive as fuck. It's like. And it's, it's carved with beer. I think the less it costs you to try the most expensive product, the more approachable the people, the, the kind of more chilled out the people are. And I think that's effectively it. Um, so, so beer. If you want to try the most expensive beer in the world, chances are you could buy one for yourself and your mate. If you want to try the most expensive wine in the world, you couldn't afford it. You just can't. Like no, I'm and I'm I'm just making a generalization with everyone in the room. Uh, I will spend a I lot can't. of money. You're right, Warren. I I can't. I've 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 thought like I could have twenty years ago. But I'm gonna right pull now. us. I'm gonna pull us back. On oh yeah, yeah. Please do. Thanks, Travis. I was hoping someone. Because <laughs> I'm I'm very I'm actually quite curious. We've been talking about like nerds and how everyone sort of coffee nerds and stuff. You guys live in a world where you are surrounded by beer nerds in Maryville. You have, mm. you know, you are in this really unique community in Maryville where, you know, you walk out your front door and you're probably looking at another brewery. Um, do you guys find that when people come and visit you, they've, they come from another brewery? Are they heading to other breweries? One of the key things I really want to ask is someone mentioned this to me earlier do you ever get people coming into batch and going, can I have something that's available at another brewery? Let's, for example, say a beer that's available at Grifter or Source. Uh, I, mean, like, I, I don't work the bar, so you have to understand. Yeah, we have like sort of two sets of customers. Is like there's the, the weekday customers, which are like our locals and regulars and the guys who come, you know, guys and girls who come multiple times in a week or the the group that has their standard table booked every Thursday, which we have since the beginning of time. Um, uh, but then there's like the Saturday crowd and sometimes Sunday as well, which is completely different as well. Um, it's kind of like in London where like there's the Bermondsey Beer Mile, which is where like mm. there was like so many breweries and such yes. a high concentration. And it kind of got ruined when time out uh, London started writing about it and they basically half of them had to shut down because they couldn't deal with the influx of all these people uh, coming into it. Um, and like, yeah, the, the Marifield beer crawl is, uh, is um, well truly established. And so our Saturday crowd is like very, very different from our weekday crowd because we're open seven days a week as a tasting room. Um, but yeah, that Saturday crowd is generally a lot more entry level beer as well. Um, but yeah, yeah, the odd person who... Uh, means to order a patch but orders a serpent's kiss which is grifter's uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh you have a bit of a chuckle with it but the funny thing is um you know like throughout the week when i run my numbers uh a lager a permanent lager on tap is probably my number two selling beer yeah week week out because of the saturday crowd is they're generally people who are newer into their beers they're on a discovery mode and you know, it can be a bit daunting. You walk into a venue, you've had to maybe have to wait 15 minutes outside before you can come inside. And then you see this board of like 10 different beers and you don't know a single one of them. Um, and our flagship uh, house lager until very recently was called Just Beer. And the amount of people that walk in, not even looking at it, was like, 
I just want a beer. I was like, yeah, we got that as well. Um, yeah, pretty much. And uh, it's still to this point, like we still, I'm still always hassling the guys to make sure we've got lagers in tank. Um, <laughs> Tom and I had this discussion probably earlier today, but um, about because we, yeah, probably it's about having that you balance. really didn't have this discussion. No, we did have this discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always wants more lagers on the yeah. <laughs> um, But the funny thing is, these are like beautiful too. But, they, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it's um, so having balance and like, you know, and Marrickville is full of beer nerds with long beard to drink IPAs and all that stuff. And we're all of those things. But we try and make it a very um, approachable as well. Um, yeah, and like I said, lagers and all these things are beers that we still sell a heap of and people want to drink. And I think it sort of shows the maturity of the beer scene is like 10 years ago, you wouldn't as a craft brewer lager because that was what the macros did. But they're actually one of the harder, more harder styles of beer to make. There's no way to hide. Mm. Um, yeah, definitely. And I still love drinking a well-made yeah. lager. Like, yeah. Have you, um, yeah. have you ever thought about uh, just going around a source and open up a brewery in their backyard area? Cause they've got a massive amount of space there. <laughs> It's it's walking distance to you guys, you so <laughs> it's funny though because we we're talking about that crawl. Is like uh, there's a bit of an order, and we're sort of like either stop number one or stop number two on the on the crawl. And depending which way you leave the brewery on a Saturday, you can sort of see the the wind of the boatman cans on the way to batch, and there's the batch cans on the way to source. <laughs> and um, I kind of sometimes feel guilty and pick them up and put them in the bin because. <laughs> It's not bad. It's not a good thing to see your your brewery's cans in the gutter on the on the on the way to the next brewery. But um, yeah, if you want to if you want to walk on a Sunday morning, you can figure out the path pretty quickly. I reckon. <laughs> I think uh, I think the last time I did it, you guys were first and you guys were last. So yeah, it was yeah. a good night. That's why we open at ten o'clock every day. We want you first, not last. <laughs> <laughs> or both. As Travis, depending now, on. Now, I've got a couple of questions and then we're going to throw to the Zoom room. So, question ready to go. But there's at least one traditional cool room question that I have to ask you. But before I get to that, and I should have asked this question when we were drinking the Easter uh, Boysenberry Sour Ale. You've got your own Spotify tracks. <laughs> and that one was an absolute banger now look you know i know i sound like i'm 46 i'm really about 25 i love the lcd sound systems i love the daft punks that was a great so when my son and i who's eight you know we basically bounce out to about 24 when we were just doing some work in the study today we listened to that that soundtrack to that one tell us about the Three how to put together a soundtrack <laughs> for a year. So oh, the, the 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 beer specific um, playlist is actually a, a a COVID era thing. It's quite new. Um, it was always a bit of a tradition. There were certain beers where you would mm. listen to certain music in the brewery as you were brewing them. Um, uh, Andrew, who's one of the owners, is a massive like a fan of a, a band called Fish, which is oh, like, we know Fish. Yeah. I used yeah. to work with a Canadian. So we have, um, there are fish-inspired beers that he would force us all to listen to fish all day while those beers were getting brewed, and we sort of quietly hoped he'd left it. So we could There'd also be 
lots of fish references, but of course, being Australian, fish isn't like hugely mm. popular. Yeah, popular, you mean no one knows them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, him wanting to call a beer after a fish song, and it's like, I don't get it. You know, what's the, yeah. know, what's yeah. the <laughs> but um, but yeah, there is a, certain beers where it's traditions where, like, as that beer is getting uh, put in the cans for the day, like, certain music has to be on. Um, <clears throat> We sort of like everyone, like brew team and bar staff, everyone has access to the music. So there could be a bit of a, a tug of war sometimes on what gets played. And we're all wildly different. I might yeah, we have well. a very, very fast <laughs> uh, music collection. Um, but yeah, um, but yeah, Andrew sort of started putting together those playlists. Um, and I didn't realize the impact of it, but like, it's so funny how many people have commented it's and right really enjoyed it. And I say, he's done a really good job because they, they, they actually work really well. I've always loved the concept of pairing music and mm. beer together. And um, yeah, they crack it, they're great. And particularly in these COVID times for us down here in Victoria, genuinely, it's just a, an interesting way to sort of, you know, have a couple of beers and get another insight into the brewery and the, the feel of what yeah. you guys want it to be. Yeah, the brewery is always like, we've had a very, it's always been a relaxed work environment, but you get your stuff done sort of a thing. and. Um, uh, that's always been the vibe from the owners down to all of us. And so, um, yeah, we, we do have fun. We work hard. Um, we, there's always music playing. There's, but there's always music always playing, music. yeah. Um, it's that awkward silence when there's three seconds of no music and you find that... So, yeah, someone's yelled out, where's the tunes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> where's the tunes? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, music is a big part of working at Batch, 100%. Yeah, definitely. The other question I have to ask before we throw over to our Zoom room and feel free, Zoom friends, to chuck in a couple more questions. You can either ask them yourselves or you can uh, type them up and we'll ask them for you. But our traditional cool room question, 50 episodes in, you guys have got to come up with some, some great cool <laughs> Um The most disturbing things you've ever seen or the funniest things you've seen in the cool room. We call it the cool room not because we think we're cool, but because we know where the fundamental bottleneck on any organisation is, we know where things break down. Yeah. We know how flywheels shear off fly across, you know, pub backyards. Um, have you ever seen anything out the back of the pub or at the back of the brewery? Well, I mean, the guys from Sierra Nevada shared a story about spoiling, oh, gee, was it 500 litres of beer? Yes. That's the kind of standard yeah. that, we, uh, that we're sitting here. Uh, I've got a couple of good stories. And considering that we're drinking Elsie, I think I've got a great story with Elsie. Is, um, when I first did my stitch of working at Bat Batch, it ended up being that I, would, I was actually working another job at the same time. So I used to just do Sundays. And so basically I would uh, manage the, the tasting room on Sunday so everyone else could have the day off. And which was great, but then I didn't get a lot of face-to-face -face contact. So sometimes you'd walk in and things like, oh, I have no idea what's going on. So one Sunday I'd walk in and the cool room was just lined with blank cans uh, of just like, just all over the place with like different numbers on them. And what it was is when we were first uh, working to getting Elsie into cans and um, we actually dosed each can with liquid nitrogen um, and that's how we get the nitro in the cans, but they were experimenting on what the right dosing rate is for liquid nitrogen. So it's basically just <laughs> canned 50 different cans and each one at a slightly different rate. And so I walk in the core room, just like there's just single cans everywhere. 
So I had to ring him up and go, what the hell's going on? He's like, oh yeah, if any of them start exploding, can you let us know and let us know what the number says in the can when it explodes? Um, that, was, that was a good one. And, um, we love, yeah. love explosions. We've got a lot of explosion stories. None of them have been That might be the biggest explosion story we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was very early days, but that was a great one. So really, it's our fault in the brewery side. Bring things to the courtroom. <laughs> Were you there at anyone the time? Told us that we you part of that process, or? <laughs> oh, when was that? Yeah, <laughs> anyone who works in the bars, like nightmare stories, um, like draining a keg in the courtroom. So like, that getting too technical, you got the bog which you got to like fill up, and then um, and it's the rookie error move where you leave the valve on, and like um. <laughs> We don't have a drain in our in our cool room because our cool room is really small, but it actually goes into a bucket. <laughs> and there was a classic thing where I was working one of those Sundays, and uh, the two other people who were on the same shift as me had called in sick. So I ended up what's normally a three-person job. I ended up just doing the whole day by myself. And so you can imagine, like running around, grabbing a glass here, pouring a glass here, and um, one of the kegs had run out. So as I'm like ten people deep waiting to get beers, running the cool room, throw a keg on. And then, um, you know, didn't think of anything. I got to the end of the day, I'd locked the doors, counted the tools, and I'd pour myself a beer, give myself a big pat in the back and have a great job I did. And the last thing I was doing as I was walking out there, I went to turn the lights off in the cool room, open the door, and it was like literally like that deep uh, in beer across the whole cool room. Mm. And the beer that mm. I drained, I'm pretty sure it was huge kahuna. So it was an 8.9% 50 litre keg. Oof. And so after doing a whole day... Limited release. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I had three kegs of it. Um, so after doing the whole day by myself, I stayed back for three hours and had to like manually mop all the beer out of the cool room, move 50 kegs back into the cool room. I thought you were going to say you tried to find a way to soak it up in a bar towel <laughs> and push it back in through the valve on the top. And I was like, man, I'm, I, I should have just left it. I should have just left it. And then the next day I got a message, not saying congratulations, thanks for the hard work. I was like, why did you stay back so late? <laughs> <laughs> I just wasted a $500 keg, but yeah, that took that pretty well, actually. So yeah, they're, they're my two cool room nightmare stories. Um, well, I had, I had to, I'll start with the, um, the, the, the least of the devastating two. Um, I uh, often walk into the cool room and sometimes someone's left their lunch there and being a bit of a, you know, <laughs> liking to have a nice clean brewery for, you know, microbial reasons, but also just generally working. And you're working like an egg sandwich? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an avocado. <laughs> a cut avocado. Um, and the cut avocado was, um, it looked good on day one. To tempting, so I'm thinking I might actually eat it. Uh, I thought, no, that's someone's lunch. I'll let that sit there. But um, Lean's pretty good with the cool room and making sure staff keep their lunch out of the cool room. No, and, Liam, uh, and we'll pass maybe, it on. Maybe, maybe Liam was away this week. So um, <laughs> I watched the uh, slow progression of the avocado go from lovely green ripe oh. avocado to brown, mm. um, which started to drive me a little bit insane. Um, just wanting, so I it got to a point where I refused to remove it, knowing that someone will come along eventually and say, oh, there's my avocado. And I'd be like, aha, that was you. Um, so, uh, yeah, it did turn into a forest to the point where I did get rid of it. Uh, couldn't handle it anymore. But most devastating actually happened, fortunately not at Batch, but definitely a beer loss story, similar to Liam. But uh, I was at my former brewery. Um, we used to keep our hops in the cool room um, and they were all carefully labelled um, on shelving, which I'd just recently reordered, uh, did a full stock take and had nice labels all on the shelves. 
and we had a piggyback keg system. So you'd take off, you could change out one keg without um, having to stop flow to the bar. And uh, as I went down to change a keg, um, the little, um, the coupler part that hooks into the, sorry, the, the hose that hooks into the coupler didn't engage, uh, so it didn't lock off. So of course I had an open spraying hose, which is then since whipped around like a uh, garden hose without any control. <laughs> and it's not only coated every wall in the core room, but has uh, coated all my lovely hops uh, organization to the point where I didn't know what box was what. <laughs> uh, and it, it, had, it had melted off all of the, um, uh, the alpha contents and the year and the crop and the hop I had, I, I Flying blind for Ooh. quite a while. So um, you have this great sense of taste where you can just put a hop in your mouth, like a <laughs> in your mouth. You, you know what it is. There was a lot of yeah. There was a lot of uh, rubbing and, and smelling <laughs> to try and figure out what was happening, but um, it wasn't a great scenario. Um, I tried to do my best to explain it. To I was not a head brewer then. I tried <laughs> to do my best to explain what. It, um, you and, certainly um, wouldn't have been if you had been at the start of the time. <laughs> Yeah, headless brew. I think for the end of it, um, it's uh, it's uh, yeah, it was it wasn't great, and it was they also are, a limited release beer. It's always limited release beer. Yeah, yep. They are definitely some of the best answers we've had to that question. I'm, I'm <laughs> like that is actually quite cool. Um, we're we're going to open up to audience questions. I think so. I think we've got uh, Gary Sparrow who's uh, sitting here waiting to ask a question. So go ahead, Gaz. Okay. It's a bit of a, I guess, a serious sort of question, you know, and it's great to get the stories about like individual beers and that, but something I've noticed about um, a couple of local um, breweries in Melbourne, um, you know, sort of backstories from a couple of people met is that you ha um, there's a number of breweries actually doing brews for other breweries. So that, you know, there's, you know, it, it's, it's, there's economics, there's a business. So, when their brews maybe drop off or they're not getting the distribution, they're doing other um, brews for other brews. And when you go into some of the local brews and some of them have got pretty good distribution now, you've seen them on, um, you know, like, um, you know, in Dan Murphy's or Liquorland, and you think, geez, I've been into that brewery and like, I don't think there's enough vats for how much um, is actually got shown on the shelves. Are you part of that, what are called permaculture in terms of beer? Are you brewing? Um, for other people in, 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 and for some of your beers that maybe aren't quite so special, like lagers, for example, you know, without sort of going into detail, are you part of that beer culture where um, you're brewing for others and maybe offloading some of your brews? Well, no, we, we don't do any, um, we don't do any brewing for anyone, anyone else except for Wildflower, who generally just use our equipment. We don't brew for them. Okay. Um, we'll sometimes help out. Um, but uh, and no one, no one else brews our beers as well. So we we do all the production uh, on site at Marrickville or in Petersham at our small batch venue. Mm -hmm. um, so no, we don't have. I mean, look, we've 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 floated the idea of maybe like being able to do a contract brew option where we can produce something with larger volume, but that hasn't certainly hasn't taken into effect in any form. So everything's made on site in Marrickville. Yeah, yeah. we get hit up by a lot of breweries asking to to use our brewery and. We, the honest answer is we just don't have the space. Yeah. We're yeah. we're like maxed out. Um, our, our scheduling is so tight that we 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 often um, empty a tank and the next day it's uh, filled again. So that's 
um, the turnover is, is very, very quick. Um, and the only downtime in there is we, what we use for maintenance on that tank as well. So, so, you, so you're right on what you say. You guys are in your, uh, quite a unique space in relation to where you brew. Can you guys give us a bit of a, just a quick insight for listeners? Like, am I correct in thinking the, the entire brewery is at the back of the tap room? Is that? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's and it's such a, you know, my experience of being there is it's this long, narrow building or, you know, it's tap room at the front, brewery at the back. So I, I can understand why you're, uh, you know, you don't have the space to do that sort of thing. Yeah. 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 And when you come to the tap room, like the bathroom's at the back, so there's an awesome walkway down the side, which basically gives you like a, a great view of the whole brewery. Of the brewery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, there's nothing high. That's all of it right there. So, um, yeah, we've, it's definitely a, a management in, um, in space utilization. And it's a, a delicate dance between me and Tom sometimes because, like, the front part of the brewery, half of it's like a loading dock while the guys are brewing, and that gets transferred into, into extra seating for the bar. And today was a great example before we both came here. I was like, <laughs> every half an hour, I was like, you done yet? I need more space. I need more space. You done Did, yet? It's really on a Friday, like, the three, yeah. three o'clock on a Friday starts to come a bit of a tug and war. Who's going to. Um, take over the loading dock yeah <laughs> but um yeah we definitely uh we i think we've got one more piece of equipment coming into the brewery very soon as part of the packing line yeah. and we there's not much more we can fit in at this stage yeah we're getting in a, a can depalletizer de so it's a, a machine that will push the cans onto the line uh so it removes us being out, having to use that staff member to physically put a can onto the canning line yep uh, so yeah, just just increasing those small efficiencies. But yeah, it's going to be tight. I think you know we're, we're measuring out to the millimeter to make sure it's going to fit. Um, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, we have another question coming up for David. If uh, I might jump in before David. Oh, Warren's going to jump in just, first. David, I'm off. So you're ready to go. Um, just in terms of the of, of fitting and size, is that? to do a lot with the, the batch philosophy of producing a lot of, of different beers. Is that a, is that a symptom of the, of the whole, that massive range of beers that you guys, that you guys do? Um, I think, uh, yeah, part, part of our, our, our core ethos is definitely being able to produce lots of experimental beers and doing, and that was why we opened Petersham because we, we actually hit a point where we weren't able to experiment as much. Um, but, um, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I guess, like, yeah, we also brew, like, <laughs> like even, like, beers like Pash, Elsie, the American Pale Ale, West Coast IPA, we're basically brewing yeah. those beers every They're always weeks. rotating through. And so a lot of that ethos is around brewing smaller batches, so getting a high turnaround and not having beers sit around for a long time, mm -hmm. um, which is a lot more labour-intensive than, than just brewing a massive brewery that has tanks going through the roof. It just allows us to control quality of the beer a lot better as well. Sorry about that. Oh, what what the heck was that? That was definitely Warren. Uh, uh, yeah. David, uh, <laughs> do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Thank you. Um, it's a question, I guess, about uh, flagship beers. Um, courtesy of David Griffiths, um, having listening in on the... Sierra Nevada guys, they um, were talking about how pale ale was their sort of um, their flagship. Uh, and uh, staggering around North Melbourne, I w wander into uh, my 
local bottle shop and lo and behold, for the first time I noticed Sierra Nevada pale ale in the fridge and people actually grabbing it and, and walking out. I really enjoyed the four beers we've tasted this evening. I'm now enjoying your nitro IPA and I, I wish that this had been part of uh, our tasting palette. This, I suspect, may be your flagship beer. I'm just interested, do craft breweries have... Are you looking for your sort of uh, home beer, the, the, the beer that everyone knows you buy? The chance is this IPA yours. It's bloody good. <laughs> uh, the, the Hopsy Mosey certainly isn't our um, part of our core range, but it's, it's, it's certainly a, it's a, a star favorite, that's yeah, for sure. It's, it's a star favorite, <laughs> and it's very common to see on the taps. Um, yeah, it's a nice pineapple um, IPA with that, that uh, nitro character. Um, but uh, I mean, the core range. So we've got some. Sorry. We've got, <laughs> is, that, is that coming through on the, on the speaker? Yeah, That's all right. I'll I'll just silence it's, it out later on. Why why the alarm's not set at, at the office? <laughs> okay, Warren will feel better if there's other people making mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what we're we talking about flagship beers. Oh yeah, so yeah, I mean like having a flagship beer that, that you're known by. Um, Sierra Nevada Paola is a great example, and 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 ours is I guess a similar style. It's much more of a classic um, American style pale ale. It even uses the Cascade. Um, uh, American Cascade, much like Sierra Nevada Pale. Um, I mean, yeah, you do want to get known for for, for a flagship beer, absolutely. Uh, but it also obviously has to be something that's popular. It has to be something that's selling, and that can be um, a dis decision factor when you're, you know, whether you're going to add something into a, a core range, um, something that that moves really well, something that's very very popular. Cool. I think we're uh, we're almost at a point of. Well, just, just, I mean, if I'm looking around Melbourne, what is the batch uh, beer that I'm going to see maybe in outlets in Melbourne? It's a good question. You didn't actually say what your flagship beer is. Oh, well, what our flagship beer is. Well, I mean, our probably biggest seller is American Pale Ale. Yeah, the so. American Pale Ale, West Coast IPA, Pash and Elsie. Those four, it's mm, like a yeah. pretty, pretty even split between those four. And they're definitely the ones you're going to find be most easiest to get in Melbourne as well. I think that's a really good way of rounding things out because if you uh, have somehow made your way to the end of this podcast, uh, and guys, you've been so generous. It's been fantastic to have you on for, for two hours. And if you've listened to two hours worth of podcasts without the beers in your hand, well, you can come down either to the Royal Mail on Spencer or just look up the Cool Room podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, and find us. And we'll be able to get the beers we've been talking about all afternoon, um, or all evening, now that it is now. Uh, guys, do you want to share both the batch social media and, if you feel like it, your own social media so that people can follow you and, and learn more and be part of the batch experience? Yeah, so uh, social media-wise for the brewery, we've got... Um, there's actually quite a few. So batch brewing companies on um, on uh, Facebook, Instagram. Um, there's a couple of other like Instagram. Uh, there's the Batchman. Batchman, which is sort of like yeah. batch out and about, more of a wholesale thing. And there's 
a third one as well. well there's Batch Man and there's Batch Van. Yes. So, Sorry to, to add confusion. There's Batch Man, which I think is the uh, uh, more focused on the stories um, and story and a bit more of the brewery yeah. side. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of pictures of us working in the back, um, physically brewing. And then there's the Batch Van, which I'm not sure if that one's actually kept up to date as much now. Which was more like about like uh, wholesale <laughs> and out and about and different other customers who have stuff and. Um, but yeah, generally the, the Batch Brewing Co. Um, as far as personal one, I'm really old and don't like, I don't have my own social media. So um, I think Tom's <laughs> kind of the same. Yeah, I'm a total noob with, with, with social media. I mean, I've got like Facebook, but, um, but I, I'm certainly not a, a heavy user. So I don't really have much to offer there for personal. I follow everyone else's. I'm a bit of a creeper like that. <laughs> the people who aren't uh, social media users, you've been incredibly generous with your time tonight, and um, we're very, very <laughs> grateful for that. If not the constant pinging from Warren's phone, no, that's, no, that's not mine. Uh, that's me. Uh, it is your phone. That's okay. I understand. Um, it's been fantastic to have you guys. I think we've had insights from you, even just things about for me the process of putting nitrogen into the cans and stuff. I've never heard that story or never heard that process explained like you did tonight. So uh, that's fantastic for me. Uh, it just means that when I'm explaining to customers down at the Royal Mail and Spencer about how the beers that we're going to be selling from you guys are made, I can do that in some, so much more an authoritative way. Uh, to Travis and Warren, who are my co-hosts, a big thank you to you guys. A big thank you to everyone else who's in the Zoom room, but a huge, huge thanks to Tom and Liam. A little round of applause for anyone who might be vaguely unmiked. That's just me, apparently. That's all good. Um, and I guess the thing to say is that if you're in the Zoom room with us, then you'd get to sit around at least with the rest of us, if not with the brewers, and uh, enjoy a few beers and a few more questions. If, you, if you're listening on the podcast, then you've missed out on that. But just a reminder that in the next few weeks, we're going to have Deep Creek from New Zealand next week. We're going to have Kaiju and Thin Man the week after that, Torboy and Moose after that. And then as we all find our way through the troubled corona times in which we find ourselves, we're really looking forward to doing more of these things. Um, it's fantastic to have people joining us for a second or third time. Um, Travis, you're going to give me the wind-up signal now, aren't you? We're going to cut off the uh, recorded feed and then people who want to stick around can. And people who don't want to stick around can go and enjoy the rest of their evenings. Thank you, gang. Hey there, Cool Room listeners. We've got a little ad for you. No, we're not asking for money so that you can advertise quality mattresses, razors, or any of those other sort of things that seem to get advertised on podcasts. What we're looking for is other fun podcasts that would like to share a 30-second ad with our listeners, letting everyone know why they're so great, and in return, letting us share a 30-second ad for The Cool Room. We know that right now there's a whole lot of people who are looking for fun new podcasts to help them while away their isolation hours, so if you've got something to share, drop us a line via our Facebook or Instagram accounts. Right, add over.